Beginning with verse 19. John 20, 19. Listen to the word of God. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand, and put my finger in the marks of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that we may encounter you, the resurrected Lord, in your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if any of you had any similar experience that I shared in the children's story, but I think it was my mom's own insecurity about how to answer religious questions or questions of faith that made her respond so negatively to a child's question, right? I asked her, is this Bible stuff really true, right? And I was beginning to be able to discern what was legend and myth, you know, and what was true. And it was a question she wasn't prepared for. And not only from my mom did I get a sense that maybe questions weren't all right, okay? But I was around a kind of Christianity that was pretty narrow, ultimately pretty narrow in its scope. It wasn't really ready to be able to answer some of the difficult questions. And, you know, I think that's part of the story of Christianity, the idea sometimes we seem that asking questions or doubts is somehow contrary to faith. But there are all kinds of different ways to doubt. Um, not all of them equally legitimate, if you would, if it comes to the quest of faith. Uh, one of the most brilliant, if not the most brilliant, PhD student uh, at Princeton when I was there uh, was an Episcopal priest who also had cerebral palsy. He used to joke, he says, God has given me a great mind and a voice that sounds like Bullwinkle. You know, and uh, it truly was a powerful thing to hear him teach and preach. I went to hear him preach one time because, you know, he had this amazing mind and a, and a deep, deep piety. And it was very present as he struggled uh, with the illness that he had. And one time we were having lunch, and he goes, Mr. Bohr, what do you see over there at that table? And I go, a bunch of doctoral students. No. Those are a bunch of evangelicals trying to lose their faith so they can sleep with other people's wives. 
<laughs> and his whole point was that they were, if you would, uh, working on becoming professional doubters, not so much because they were looking for questions, but they were looking actually to change their faith so they could change their lifestyle. And certainly sometimes doubt comes from, I don't want to live like a Christian anymore. Sometimes doubt comes from laziness. Sometimes it just is not, people are just not interested. You know, they just accept whatever the narrative is. Okay, you know, Christianity, it's nice for those people who need it, or even more generally, religion's okay for people who, who need that crutch, but I'm sophisticated. I don't need that. So sometimes that's where doubt comes from. Sometimes doubt comes from people of genuine faith who have put their faith in the wrong things. One of the saddest moments I remember as a young adult is a person who had a great influence on me as a teenager. He was a few years older than me. He was a college student. And we were camp counselors together. And he was a kind of a radical Christian. He asked hard questions. He really seemed to me to be someone who was loving God with his mind. And that really opened up a whole new world for me. I think, you know, I was in one of those summers where suddenly I was questioning everything politically, philosophically, and beginning to question things from faith. And that summer with Barry really was helpful for me to really begin to know what it meant to engage my mind in the faith. So years later, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a young adult. I'm actually pastoring a church. And he came to see me, and, and he had lost his faith. But he had lost his faith because he felt it was his fault. He felt that he hadn't believed strong enough or well enough. And it was this kind of self-condemning, um, sad kind of understanding. Now, eventually he got better, but it took him a decade or so. And he had doubt, not so much in reality. And I was trying to tell him, Barry, you're not doubting God, you're doubting yourself, okay? And, and that's why we have grace. But he had lost his faith because he had placed his faith in the wrong place. And I know many people who've become maybe disillusioned with pastors disillusioned with leaders, disillusioned with Christians. Um, I'm always shocked when anyone ever becomes disillusioned with a pastor. <laughs> I think, you know, we're so, I don't know, we're so flawed. I, you, know, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know why. I'm always surprised when people are surprised we're flawed because it's always very abundantly clear to me that, that I'm a flawed vessel. So, but sometimes we lose doubt, we lose faith or we doubt because we've placed our faith in a particular reading of the Bible, okay? That's why a lot of people, you know, they lose their faith the first time they hear something critical at, at, uh, in college or somewhere else. And sometimes they put their faith in a wrong idea, a wrong doctrine, a wrong teacher. But there's also a kind of doubt that can come from spiritual crisis. It was against Mother Teresa's wishes, I guess she's St. Teresa now, but it was against her wishes, but her diaries and letters were published. And I don't know if any of you have read them, but they are remarkably uh, difficult things to read because she went through this remarkable dark time of her soul, a dark night of her soul that lasted for over a decade. And this is something that she wrote. This is the middle of her doing amazing things for the kingdom of God. Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and pain I can't explain. Such deep longing for God and repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. 
Helping souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. This was part of the story of one of the greatest Christians of our time. And if you read the great Christians of history, okay, uh, Martin Luther, uh, St. John of the Cross, Charles Spurgeon, again and again, even C.S. Lewis, uh, part of what marks their spiritual journey is times of doubt and times of dryness. And so the doubt of Thomas, I think, can be seen as a spiritual crisis. It certainly attempts to deal with the loss and the trauma of all that had happened the previous week. Sometimes, rightfully, we rejoice at Easter, but we forget what a tough and disastrous week it was up to that Sunday. How disillusioning, how frightening. How all their hopes had been destroyed. The incredible violence and torture that the best man they ever knew went through. And if you were close enough to the cross, you would have even heard Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's understandable that Thomas was feeling a little bit forsaken by God. It's understandable in view of everything that happened, <laughs> that Thomas had a very reasonable, if not sane, approach to what had happened. I think Thomas is guilty of being honest. His legacy has been called the Doubting Thomas, but he's the honest Thomas in my book. Jesus is dead, and Thomas is dealing with that reality. And he's not with the disciples. So why wasn't he with the other disciples when Jesus appears? Maybe he quit. Maybe he was saying, you know, it's over. Okay. <laughs> the only reason I was hanging out with these guys anyway was because of Jesus, frankly. You know, I'm, I'm okay to be away from them. It was kind of a motley crew, if you look at it. So maybe Thomas was already beginning to get on with his life, dealing with the grief, the tragedy, the trauma. To me, that's not, that's not surprising. That's understandable, right? And frankly, it was kind of dangerous to be hanging out together. John says they were, they were hiding because of the Jews. They were hiding because of the Romans as well. Remember their leader? He died as a capital prisoner, right? He, he, he'd been crucified, if you would, as a would-be king, a traitor, an insurrectionist. So what happens to you if you're a follower of an insurrectionist? Usually not good things, right? Okay. So Thomas was saying, I need to get on with my life here. So to me, maybe the first miracle is that he comes back and hangs out with the guys one more time. And he shows up and they tell him we've seen the Lord. And he goes, yeah, right, right. Guys, I wish he was alive too. I wish he was alive. But 
He's not. You know, we all pretended that this was going to end a different way, but let's be honest. We believe that we could change the religious establishment. We believe that we could rally the people. We believe that we could topple the Romans. But now reality is back. If we'd have been honest, none of that could have ever happened. You know, maybe Jesus was too good for us. He certainly was too good for the world. In my experience, people one way or the other ultimately destroy what is good, beautiful, and true. Yeah, Jesus is alive. I'll believe it when I see the holes in his hand and the holes in his side. A doubt that leads to despair is probably an honest path if in this life we only have faith in ourselves, our faith in our fellow humanity, our faith in inevitable progress. But if God is present in the shadows, then honest doubt is part of faith. Anne Lamont, who I think is a great writer in her own right, and a person who came to faith, and her writings are, are, are fun, they're funny, and, and so honest. In her first book she wrote after she was a Christian, she said this, I have a lot of faith, but I'm also afraid a lot. And I have no real certainty about anything I remember something Father Tom had told me, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. I like that. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, and discomfort and letting it be until some light returns. Thomas's honest doubt was based on a very real human experience. The trauma and violence of losing somebody he believed in, he trusted, someone who had shown him a different way, someone who had died violently at the hands of evil people. But... He also had forgotten, or probably more accurately failed to grasp, who Jesus was and what God is really about in the world. We gather every week on Sunday because we are resurrection people. But how easy it is to lose sight of the implications of the resurrection. How easy is it to lose sight that God is with us? How easy is it to lose sight and fall back into old patterns of religious behavior that judge, that sanctify our fears, our anxieties, and our prejudices? Jesus has conquered death, but he also needs to conquer you and me. And that really is the life of faith. Remember the beloved disciple? We're going to talk about him in a couple of weeks. Remember he shows up at the grave, right? 
last week. He looks in, he believes, but then it goes on and says he did not understand that Jesus was to rise from the dead. So what did he believe in? Right? I don't know. We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. But I think Thomas and the beloved disciple are similar in that they both jump to hasty conclusions. Though I would give the benefit of the doubt, if you would, to Thomas. The beloved disciple decides he believes without understanding, which often is a sin of presumption. Yeah, there's a lot of people that talk about the resurrection in a way that's more presumptuous than faithful. Presumption is the kind of mistake that makes you jump off the pinnacle of the temple only to find out a nanosecond before you hit ground at the speed of gravity that God is not sending angels to catch you. Thomas's rational rejection of the disciples' report of seeing the resurrected Christ beats the philosopher David Hume's skepticism by 17 centuries. Yet ironically, Thomas had been willing to die for Jesus. Remember in chapter 11, he says, let's go with Jesus so that we may die with him. But he did not believe what Jesus had clearly told him prior to his death. To borrow an idea from Thomas Halik, neither Thomas nor the beloved disciple had the kind of patience with God that sustaining faith requires. To be able to sit with our doubts and our uncertainty, yet believe, is really what I think saving faith is about. If we do not have an intellectually honest or an experientially honest faith, then that separates us, if you would, from either our mind or reality. I remember pastoring a church where the previous minister had told them it was wrong to grieve at funerals. (laughs) <laughs> because we believe in the resurrection. And I, it was sometimes I felt so bad for those people because I'd be doing a funeral and it all looked like they were sucking their bodies into themselves, right? Because of course you, you, of course you cry at funerals. Of course you mourn at funerals. Because you miss them. They may be in heaven, but you're not, right? I mean, we celebrated my Uncle Jim yesterday, and he should be celebrated. But it's sad that he's not around anymore. It is. The world was a better place when he was here. So a faith that denies the reality of human experience and and suffering is not a real faith. But also a faith that isn't honest about real doubts means we have to turn our brains off. So many Christians and so much Christianity throughout the history of the church required you to turn your brain off when you walk through the door. Or give you a false system to believe in that doesn't hold up to reality. Now, Thomas shows us that there's a place for honest doubt. Thomas also shows us the limitation of doubt, right? Jesus shows up. Okay. And to Thomas's credit, he falls on his knees. He doesn't need to put his hands. <laughs> he doesn't, you know, Jesus offers him the scars, which is kind of funny, right? It's a little bit funny. I mean, it's a beautiful scene, but Thomas said, unless I see the scars 
unless I see the hole in my, his side. And Jesus shows up and goes, here they are. All right, I, maybe I have a weird sense of humor, but it's a little funny. Come on, a little funny. But Thomas doesn't need to do that. He falls on his knees and he actually gives the strongest Christological statement in the entire New Testament. He declares that Jesus is my Lord and my God. People who say that that was invented three centuries later have never read the New Testament. I'm not saying he fully understood what that meant, but Thomas declares that Jesus is both Lord of earth and God of heaven. Thomas Hawick. Let it be said over and over again. Faith is not a question of problems, but of mystery. We must never abandon the path of seeking and asking. A problem can be solved once forever. A mystery, unlike problems, cannot be overcome. A mystery invites, you to, invites us to try and understand it again, to go deeper and deeper. The resurrection is not evidence that demands a verdict. The resurrection is a mystery that invites our lives to live in the face of fear, death, and hate. To respond to this world, to respond to our own selves with the hope and love of the resurrected Jesus Christ. I don't always understand it, Sometimes I doubt it, but it always sets me free if I wait for it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and proclaim what we believe in the Apostles' Creed.